centuries, humankind has recorded their time on Earth both in the oral and written traditions. However, humans are flawed, and by extension, so are our historical records. We create our own narrative. Just like our ancestors have for all time, we actively decide what is canon and what is falsehood. Our whole lives, we've been committed to exploring the depths of history for the unbridled truth. After receiving degrees from Yale, we have set our sights on the unseeable, the mysterious, and the unknown. We are the Mysteries of History Podcast. So our guest today on the podcast is James McQuiston. Uh, he has been researching Scottish history for over uh, four decades. Um, he is the author of the most recent books, Oak Island, Missing Links, and Oak Island, 1632. And he is a fellow with the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. James, thank you for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, always fun to talk about my Oak Island adventure. We're excited to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been digging through your books, and uh, we're, we're almost to the end of 1632, both, both Luke and I. And we are absolutely enthralled with the story. And uh, one of the questions that came to my mind as soon as I started reading um, was, why did you begin writing these books? What was the itch you were trying to scratch well, um, I read the 1965 article in Reader's Digest, and I was always fascinated with Oak Island. But separately from that, I was uh, fascinated with Scottish history, particularly the clan history, because my family goes back uh, 500 years to the originator. And so I was uh, actually writing some Scottish history, and I was watching Curse of Oak Island, and... I remembered that my distant relative, his name is Sir Ian MacDonald McQuiston, which is the Gaelic for McQuiston. Mm. Uh, he is the premier baronet of Nova Scotia. So I thought, gee, I wonder if they know about that and if they'd like to know about it. So I found an email address and I sent it off to him. Well, the next thing I knew, they uh, had one of their historians call me and talk to me for about an hour and asked me to answer a number of questions and send what I could. So I did, and then I just started sending so many emails, and I was getting fascinated by the connection of the Scottish clans to the to Nova Scotia history in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, so they suggested I write my first book, which is Oak Island Missing Links. And it, during that, I made a number of discoveries, and... Once I got it published, they asked me to come up and speak to them about it in the war room, which I did in June of 2017. And um, so at that particular meeting, I was asked to look further into any Templar connection because mm. they were definitely on a hunt for Templar connections at the time. And I said I would, and I came back and I connected uh the scots clans that i'm talking about um they had their chiefs had become what they called a knight baronet of nova scotia so i looked at the list and at least 25 percent of the baronets turned out to have some kind of connection back to the templars but if you looked at just a very few couple dozen or so that that signed up they all had connections back 
so that was pretty startling. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I kept uh, I kept researching and tripped over the fact that the leader of these uh, settlers of the baronets in Nova Scotia also happened to be the world's first recorded non-operative Freemason. Wow. So that really sparked my interest. So I looked at the first seven. Uh, I could find records on the first seven recorded Freemasons, and every one of them had a link to the baronets of Nova Scotia. And then I looked at two of the most famous uh, early Freemasons, that formed the Royal Society, and both of them had links to the Baronets of Nova Scotia. So I, now I knew that there was a, there was some kind of a link of these early Freemasons to Nova Scotia, and of course, has as has been pointed out in the past, Freemasons have taken an inordinate interest in the treasure on Oak Island. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the early digs were all led by Freemasons. So uh, that, then that really sparked my interest. So mm -hmm. I finished the second book, and uh, I'm invited back up this year, and I've been in regular contact by phone and through email. And uh, we're working on a lot of different angles, mm -hmm. uh, some other treasures that we think might be there. Mm -hmm. So uh, going back to why or right now you're, you're currently working on the ground in in Oak Island with, uh, with the, you know, with the searchers, what, what have you learned, um, literally being on the ground that you couldn't have learned, uh, researching in a library or reading in a book? What, what, what benefit has that brought to you? Well, uh, one of the, it may not have to do necessarily with the research, but I realized that these people that are involved in it, the Laginas and and Craig Tester uh, and Doug Crow, which I've communicated with a lot, these are real human beings on a real venture uh, that sometimes it, it parallels the History Channel's Curse of Oak Island show, but uh, they only cross paths periodically, mm -hmm. I guess is the nicest way to say it, because they're seriously looking and seriously amassing a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And uh, the History Channel can only show so much. And they, uh, I, I don't fault them at all because when, they're, when that show's on, it's the number one show on cable. So they mm -hmm. obviously know what they're doing. Uh, but they can't possibly show everything that's happening. And I also know of a couple other people that presented in the war room whose uh, presentation wasn't shown as mine wasn't. But they were totally courteous, and I, I I know it sounds funny, but to say, but they're some of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, wow. Especially Rick Rick Lagina is just a um, prince, I guess. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, I can tell you stories about things that he's done for us, and uh, so uh, it made me realize that these are serious folks right. on a serious search. Uh, trying to absorb everything they can, and they're certainly dedicated. They've been at it 10 years now, and they've uh, probably $10 million later. You know, they're still wow. uh, searching. Uh, as far as the history of it, it helped me, uh, number one, get a lay of the land of, of Oak Island, because when you see it on TV or you read about it, it's, not, it's just not like mm -hmm. it is when you're right there. Mm -hmm. Also, 
the day before my presentation, they sent me across Nova Scotia to Doug Kroll's uh, private library. Mm -hmm. And he has some uh, one-of-a-kind books, uh, one-of-a-kind maps. And they, they have maps where they're, you have to take them out with cloth gloves and lay them on a table and nobody's allowed to touch them. They're, wow. they're uh, very old. And uh, so uh, I was privy to a lot of uh, special material that I wouldn't have seen. Mm-hmm. Plus, I was able to share with their historians. So had I just been sitting at home, I would have not seen a lot of those books or maps and I would have not been able to talk face-to-face with those people. So it was absolutely a wonderful experience. And I got to spend three nights drinking beer with Gary Drayton, <laughs> which was a real treat because that guy is a character, I want to tell you. Were the, oh, words, you know. were the words crown time ever said while you were around? <laughs> well, I, I don't remember that. He wasn't drinking. I don't think he was. He was drinking beer with me. But, uh, but and, and as a matter of fact, one of the nights we met the uh, – searchers from finders keepers who are working up at new ross mm-hmm. and so they sat around with us uh sharing a brew and sharing stories uh everybody is on some degree of a non-disclosure agreement right. so they all uh try to push the limit but try to try to stay safe you know so yeah. a lot of stories gary told us was about other things he'd done in life besides their mm-hmm. uh, but even one of the uh, Prometheus uh, producers took us on a uh, golf cart ride and said, talk about breaking a, an NDA agreement. I'm going to take you somewhere that I'm not, I'm not even supposed to be. <laughs> he, he explained that they were trying to get permits. They were right on the verge of getting permits to dig in a certain area. And so he took us in there and showed it was very thick in there, but we saw what he was looking at. And, so, uh, they, you know, everybody tries to uh, be fair to everyone else. That's the biggest part of the NDA is to be fair to everyone else. Uh, but they also are so anxious to share mm-hmm. what they know or what they've seen or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's their entire life. I mean, it's so consuming. This it seems the story of Oak Island really consumes people's interest. And the fact that they're on the ground is really exciting, but they can't talk about it to anybody <laughs> until the show comes out. Is, is and you know insane. they call it? They told me they call it islanditis, and once you get it, it's a disease you can't get rid of. And <laughs> I'm kind of proof of it so far because I started this 18 months ago, and hardly a day goes by that I'll be sitting there watching TV or doing something else, and a thought will strike me. Well, geez, I wonder about this, and then. I try to look it up on my phone, and I thought, I really got to get to the computer, and I'm on the computer, and next thing you know, three hours have gone by, and I'm sending an email off to Rick Lagina about what I just found out or something, you know. And mm-hmm. So the, the thing that I found in studying uh, the Scottish history right along, which includes Nova Scotia, is that there there's a lot of information out there. Uh, you just have to go looking for it. But one thing about the Scots is they were – really big on recording their genealogies for one thing. Uh, and part of that was to know who was the latest Lord or Earl or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. But even, even in with the common folks, they did a lot of recording of that. So in those records of genealogy are also little tidbits of history. And so there's been an awful lot written. And of course you have to decide whether to take a certain thing with a grain of salt, 
So generally what I try to do is confirm it with one or two more sources. So mm -hmm. if, if I can find two or three sources that say the same thing, but coming from a totally different angle, then I think, well, why would three different people make it up? You know, right. exactly. it must be true because, you know, it, it would be a conspiracy, you know, mm -hmm. through the years just to tell a lie, which doesn't make sense. Well, what I appreciate about appreciate about your book is that it seems like you are triangulating all of these historical trajectories. I mean, you're talking, I mean, you're right now, uh, in, in your chapter, Oak Island of 1632, um, you talk about the carbon dating that has been done on wooden planks found in, in the, in the swamp area. And, uh, you make a great point, I think, is if you triangulate like the, the range in which those wooden planks could have come from, um, like in time, uh, 1632 seems to land right smack dab in the middle. If you, if you're comparing all those dates, you know, you have one from like centered around 1575, one around 1700 and one around, uh, uh, 1720. And you, you know, give or take 70 to 80 years, you know, right in the middle, the, the common point is that, decade between six or two decades between 1620 and 1640 so i thought uh your book really does you know triangulate and try and like w what makes sense what's you know what's common sense about this well actually you hit the nail on the head there with what makes sense and that was one of the earliest things i did because when, once i start started to find out what the baronets of Nova Scotia were about and when their settlement was, I thought, well, what evidence would there be that that they would have anything to do with it? And I thought, well, the, be the best scientific evidence is the carbon dating. So I looked up on a, a very nice website out of England. Uh, this, uh, people have done a great job on it, and they've reproduced a number of the carbon dating records. So I did the bar graph, as you were talking about. I, I bar graphed it, and uh, essentially it hits about 1620 to 1660 is when everything would fit. And so if you, if you don't believe that everything fit in there, then you have to believe that there were two different groups of people finishing lumber and burying it underground because, uh, you know, it just wouldn't make any sense. So what's striking about that is this Alexander family that was leading the baronets of Nova Scotia they uh, were first asked to actually chase, chase the French out in 1620, which is the beginning of that period. They received Nova Scotia the very next year, 1621. They settled in, in 1629 uh, through 32 when they were asked to leave. And that was my theory about them ending up more or less accidentally on Oak Island sure. in the middle of the storm. But they also had built themselves a secret estate up and this isn't in that particular book but up uh, up gold river at new ross mm -hmm. and they were actually there until 1656 when cromwell's troops came over to he had already taken over scotland england and ireland and mm -hmm. he wanted to get the english colonies too so he sent his troops over to nova scotia and that's when the final alexander left and they went down to virginia and that's where Alexandria of Virginia comes from these same people and after the, wow. the war was over uh, years later the Alexanders that were left petitioned the uh, 
British government to get all their land and titles back, but they lost they lost the battle. But a, a complete book was written about this court case uh, because they had so much evidence that uh, they had the titles in Scotland, they had the land, 16,000 acres in Nova Scotia, and then it, they got chased out from Cromwell. So um, if you look at the window of the carbon dating and you look at the... Uh, window of this uh, influence of the baronets of Nova Scotia, it's virtually an exact match, mm -hmm. and yet they were come about from two different angles. You know, one was a scientific study of carbon dating, the other was a historical study of the baronets of Nova Scotia. So, so uh, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, one question that, that was in my mind, um, just about this whole theory of the ship and how it uh, could have been sunk right in the middle of where right now the present day marshes. Uh, I thought on the show uh, we found significant evidence that, that the ship was like a Spanish make. Is there anything inconsistent about that That with the theory about the Alexanders and, and the Scots um, leaving some treasure on that island? Well, there's a couple of different angles there. Uh the the only thing that really pointed to it being Spanish was the Spanish coin that was found. Mm. And how that came about, uh, nobody's sure. But Spanish coins were commonly used. A lot of people don't know this, but even into the uh, time of the American Revolution, mm. one of the standards was the Spanish coin because wow. it was uh, an actual gold coin that people uh, could count on, you know. So, uh, but... Uh, the other angle to it, too, and I'm not trying to just stretch to, to prove something, but when William Alexander Jr., who left with his four ships to settle Nova Scotia, he was given, uh, 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 what would you call it, uh, a letter of, from the king to say that he could take any Spanish or French ship on the way. Right. And they, they did take some French ships for mm -hmm. sure. And we also know that he took a Portuguese ship that was a whaling ship. It, had, it was full of whalebone, and he captured that, and he got, they got actually sued by Portugal to get it back. So there was a lot of uh, interaction on the high seas between Spain and France and Portugal and, and uh, Scotland and England. You know, it was just a... You know, one of the things about up there that's kind of interesting is that when you think about people going across from, say, the Norwegian countries or the Celtic countries to North America, uh, a lot of people say that the Vikings couldn't have done it, which we know now that they did because of the Viking village in, Nova, in Newfoundland. But also, um, uh, the thing of, when they compare it to Columbus, Columbus sailed 3,800 miles right across the ocean with no place to stop. They only had to s sail about 2,000 miles, and mm -hmm. they had the Faroe Islands, Iceland, Greenland, Newfoundland, and before they got to Nova Scotia. So it was a totally different mindset, and the, and the other thing about it is that the Norwegian and Celtic countries, uh, they're islands, essentially, and most of their travel was by boat. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was safer to travel by boat than it was by land because of the highwaymen robbing, you know. So, so that... It was second nature to them to just get on a boat and sail. And, and um, so, 
Sorry to interrupt you, Jim. In your first book, you mention about what technology it took to cross um, the Atlantic Ocean. And um, you also talk some about how early that technology might have existed. Um, so I think it's how long would you say that it would take to make that journey? Um, well, well, in those first few uh, trips that they were making, uh, the baronets of Nova Scotia trips, mm. it only took them five to six weeks. Wow. And if, if you're living in a time where you have no video games and no, uh, you know, cable TV and, and really very few books to read, uh, at that point, printing had only been invented uh, not too long before that, you know, five or six weeks out of your life was nothing. I mean, what are you, you're going to watch sheep graze, yeah. you know, for five, <laughs> six weeks, or you're going to maybe have a battle a clan battle or something, but, you know, it was a different mindset. And so, and the, as far as the travel across there, uh, one of the advantages that they had was that there's more daylight as, as you approach the Arctic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to travel across, uh, you would have the sun to guide you. And, you know, a lot of people think they use the stars a lot, but they, trying to use the sun most of the time and they would take readings during the day to know if they were going to continue to sail through the night to you know sail generally in the right direction and that's one of the things about the vikings had the uh, that crystal that they would look through that, you, that would help them see the sun even through the clouds you know at least see Whoa. roughly yeah. where it was located yeah. so there were a lot of ancient uh, instruments that they used to sail and, and again that's all they did was sail they sailed all the time from Norway to Scotland and England and Ireland, everywhere. So um, I, I think the complexity of them sailing over there is way overrated. I think it would have been just another day for them. Um, and so it could have, you know, like a lot of people talk about the Henry Sinclair voyage. There's a lot of evidence that there would have been reasons for him and several of the clan chiefs that are thought to have gone with him to head over there because of societal collapse in Scotland. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly give him any credit for anything on Oak Island, but I I can easily believe that he made it to Nova Scotia. Uh, and a lot of people do. Thousands of people believe he made it. But uh, I, I, I always look for the mundane, or I hate to use the word mundane, but let's say pragmatic or practical reasons why people do things. And the number one reason is always survival, uh, you know, and then if, if you're surviving, okay, then it's greed, you know, and you might throw in a little uh, religious seal, you know, mm -hmm. or, or uh, you, with greed, along with greed, you could add in power. But typically the number one reason is survival. And both in the times of Henry Sinclair and again in the times of uh, the baronets of Nova Scotia, there was a lot of societal collapse going on. And the baronets, actually, Baroness Nova Scotia was followed, no, through no fault of them, was followed by the uh, British Civil War. It started in Scotland, spread to Ireland, spread mm -hmm. to England, and King Charles I, who was their benefactor, was actually beheaded by Cromwell. So mm -hmm. um, when you're living in a, a place like that, uh, it's, it's not... Uh, unheard of to think, well, there must be a better way to live. There must be a better place to live. 
And there isn't any question that a lot of people thought that William Alexander was going to create a utopia mm -hmm. in, in New Scotland. There's actually a poem from that period which alludes to that. And it's really interesting that Sir Francis Bacon, who some people think some of his writings were buried there, he actually was writing a book called The New Atlantis, which was about a utopia to the West hmm. at the exact same time that his friend William Alexander was trying desperately to create a utopia mm -hmm. to the West. So um, I think that a lot of these Scottish clans, you, to become a baronet, you had to be already well-to-do right. and, and somewhat powerful. They didn't, and they did not, even, even if you're going to be a settler, they just did not want broken men or farmhands. They wanted blacksmiths and teachers and uh, ministers, things like that, to create a, a, this new world. Uh, New Scotland. And so uh, their goal, you know, was, uh, maybe it was unfair, but it was to create a New Scotland of class act people, where they wouldn't have the plague and they wouldn't have the peasants and they wouldn't have all that, you know. And, and so that's why they were given such big estates. The, the estates mm -hmm. ranged from 11,000 up to 16,000 acres. Oh, my gosh. Well, Those are gigantic. You, you can imagine <laughs> there probably were very few 16,000-acre plots in Scotland anywhere, unless maybe the king owned one for a, you know, for a deer farm or something. But, you know, that was unheard of in Scotland. So that was their goal, was to get out of town, take the best people with them, create a utopia there. And uh, it was... Uh, an, uh, I guess an unfortunate uh, treaty between the two brother-in-laws, the King of Great Britain and the King of France. They were tired of their countries fighting, and part of the settlement was that Charles I of England, or, well, of Great Britain, said he'd give Nova Scotia back to the French. And that's why they were forced to leave in 1632. And my point about that is that and I'm not saying that things didn't happen after that date involving the same people, but they were asked to leave in uh, on March 29th. That was the order to leave, and they sure. had eight days to pack and three weeks to leave. Well, that would put them in the ocean on April 27th. So I looked up a NOAA weather report uh, about that time during 2017, and it showed gale force winds of 35 to 45 knots, fog, uh, 15 up to 15 foot waves and the worst thing is the freezing spray um, I don't know if you ever watched the the reality show deadliest catch but when mm. their boats get covered with ice they go out there with a baseball bat and break it off but sure if you were trying to do that to a 16th century ship uh, your ship would be beat to pieces and it wouldn't be long before you sunk so then I look up some other weather reports and I came to the conclusion that it would have been virtually impossible to sail across the North Atlantic at the end of April. Mm -hmm. So if you came around the, the, the bottom cape of uh, Nova Scotia and came up, up the coastline, which they always did to sail back because there were sandbars off the coast that a lot of ships got lost on. So they would sail right up the coast till they got to Newfoundland and then cut across. Well, the biggest bay is Mahone Bay. Uh, one of the f islands furthest back in that bay is Oak Island. There's a direct tack, wind tack, from the open ocean to Oak Island. Uh, and this I was told by Doug Carroll. We, he found two depth charts that showed that the water around Oak Island was deep enough to hold a 
uh, tall ship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you add all of that to the fact that the carbon dating matches. And now you got to wonder if, if that isn't what happened. And as far as a boat ending up in the swamp, uh, last, last winter, not this, just this recent winter, but the winter before, that road nearly washed out. And there was just a little bead holding the ocean back from the cove. Mm. So if, if you imagined, it's a man-made road. And if you imagined 100 years of Mother Nature pounding at that, there wouldn't be any separation and that would be a cove there's that's just a common sense that that would be a cove mm -hmm. in there and uh it's deep enough probably to hold to for a tall ship to sail into but it's not really deep enough for one to tip over and sink there and hide forever it's just not that deep because bedrock it, it's uh, bedrock below it but that doesn't mean that one didn't go crash in there or even a smaller uh boat like a tender or a, what mm -hmm. they call a panace uh, that usually took them over to land from the big boat couldn't have crashed in there. Those had sails too. And um, there's been so many parts that Fred Nolan found a number of them and he showed Rick a notebook of photos of them once on the show and they went by so fast and he was saying what they were, but you know, it just wasn't slow enough to really decipher it. But he found stuff in there they found that uh, spike and that spike a lot of people said it was a railroad spike that gary drayton found well mm -hmm. he swore that he found hundreds of them on wrecks down in the caribbean and that other lady uh that artifacts lady came in she said verified that it was that well we live right on lake erie and there's uh, a few thousand wrecks here and at the local maritime museum, they have the exact same kind of spikes wow. sticking, yeah. st still sticking in pieces of of the wood from these old ships. So there isn't a question that that was a ship spike. Now, the question, my biggest question would be, why aren't there twenty or thirty or forty of them? Yeah, unless something just broke off the ship, they got the rest of the ship back out of there, salvaged it, and and those ended up laying there. But it's entirely possible that that happened. Uh, the people that say it isn't possible are wrong, but I'm not saying that it absolutely did either, you know, but it's entirely possible that it could have a, a small boat or even a smaller ship could have wrecked in there mm -hmm. and then they salvaged it and uh, got whatever it had on there that was worth anything out or rebuilt it and got it out of there. So let's take a moment. I want to, I want to ask you about one of the items you, you think could, could have been, um, in the Scots uh, ships as they're leaving Port Royal. Um, could you ex explain to our listeners what the Stone of Destiny was? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting Fortis. thing. Um, the, the original Stone of Destiny was said to have come from Egypt to Ireland, and then it was taken from Ireland over to Scotland uh, with the Celtic kings. And they have projected dates for when all that happened. Well... Uh, when Edward of England came up to take over Scotland in the early 1300s, he stole the Stone of Destiny, and it's a, the one that they're referring to as the Stone of Destiny is a block of sandstone with a couple of iron handles embedded in it. And they took it to England, and it sat under the coronation chair of Scott of England for uh, until 1996, when it was. Uh, finally returned to Scotland in a big ceremony. So 
these governments, you know, at the highest level of governments, respected the worth of that stone. But the legend always was that uh, some monks had actually hidden the real stone of destiny and had substituted a piece of local sandstone so that Edward would still that and think he had the real thing. Mm-hmm. Well, what supports that is that when that stone was returned, they did a study on it, and in fact, it was the same as local sandstone. Mm. And so a friend of mine, uh, Ron Henderson, over in Perth, Scotland, he looked into, he started researching uh, every contemporary description he could find of what the stone of destiny looked like because people had been to see the Scottish king crowned on it and they wrote various descriptions of it. He he found three of them and none of them say it was a square block of sandstone. They all say it looked uh, uh, amazingly like a toilet. It was like a a seat that had a a little bowl in it for comfort. So you're saying there's no chance. That. So you're saying there's no chance that stone slab found down uh, about a hundred meters down is the stone of destiny. There's absolutely no, no chance. No, no, no. I don't believe that is. Um, but the nobody knows where. If if in fact the original one was hidden by the monks, nobody knows where it's at. And my point in that first book was that. The other big item missing is uh, the first real modern history ever written on Scotland. The first, the first production of it, it was all handwritten by monks and historians, and the first transcription of it are both missing. They've been missing almost uh, shortly after they were created. Uh, other transcriptions, about nine other transcriptions of it were made, but the original and the first transcription have been missing for since the mid-1400s. Now, is that the Scotchonomicon? Yeah, the, yeah, the Scotochronicon. Scotochronicon, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how you say it, but it's the Chronicles of Scotland. Okay. And uh, so it, it just seemed to me logical that if you were going to uh, try to create a new Scotland, two of the things that you would want to have is the coronation chair from the original one and the history of the original one, so that... You know, when it, as it carried on, if you had big dreams for what this new Scotland could be, you could show the people where, you know, where it came from. Uh, I'm also on the trail of another treasure, which I can't talk too much about, but it, it's all tied in with the exact same people. And uh, it's, uh, it's actually a treasure that was stolen by one of the first Freemasons before he was a Freemason. And he, um, and it's never resurfaced. And he was tried by the Privy Council, but uh, he was found. I, I, they say he was found not guilty, but in looking at the records I can find on a trial, it looks like they just delayed them until he became a baronet of Nova Scotia. And one of the things about being a baronet of Nova Scotia, which is crazy, but it put you above the law, and it's right in their charter. Right. You answer to no law except William Alexander in Nova Scotia. So that could have been one reason why a lot of these Scots clan chieftains wanted to become baronets just to get to escape their past, was, you know, because you got to know a lot of them had pulled, you know, being Scotsmen and, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, wealthy, uh, you don't get that way without pulling some 
crazy things. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, was so was uh, Sir William Alexander Senior? Was he on the Privy Council at that moment when when that that trial took place? Uh, yes, he would have been, as far as I know. So I, I never actually looked that up specifically, but yeah, he would have been. So and what was interesting? It's plausible. About that, it's plausible that, that he aided and abetted this man to yes, escape. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think so. Oh, that's kind of where I'm heading with this is that, uh, uh, you know, he needed money to get this thing going. He was given uh, all this property, but there was no manufacturing or any way to, to harvest anything yet. He didn't, he was ha- even having trouble getting men of quality to go there. In fact, on their very first voyage, which was 1622, to explore, they only had uh, two uh, men of uh, any caliber. One was a minister, and the other one, I believe, was a blacksmith. They couldn't get anybody else to go. And they did not want to take just broken men, because then they would just have trouble there. Mm-hmm, right. But the second uh, time they went, in 1623, the very next year, they did have better settlers and they um they made a mistake of um trying to settle at port what they call port mattoon uh it was named after it was named after mutton the french named it because a ship fell a sheep fell overboard from the ship (laughs) well the french the scots and the english had failed settlements there because the ground was too rocky and it, it was an easy place to land a ship but when they tried to you know Har- uh, harvest food they couldn't plant so they all moved on from there but uh so i kind of have the feeling that that particular group more or less turned around and went back up the coast into mahone bay and up to new ross because uh there's a legend that uh the alexanders had an estate at new ross built in 1623 and uh uh i'm working on that but i've got some pretty pretty good evidence on it and uh actually it's on my website uh some of it but uh i just met uh via email the man who provided the uh legend that his family had helped build this estate back in 1623 and i've only just started emailing with him so i'm uh you know the answers come slow sometimes you know you have to build up a rapport Mm -hmm. but uh he agreed that he was the gentleman that that said that and i'm still waiting to hear more from him but uh even up until 1624 he's uh, alexander j- just hadn't been able to get the money together that he needed so he got this idea of the knights baronet of nova scotia and the king approved it and they you would buy uh I, I don't know what the cost in modern money when every time you try to translate you get three or four answers and they range so much but uh, you would buy it for a certain amount of money, but you also had to agree to provide six settlers, and they had to be men of some kind of quality, teachers, blacksmiths, you know, experienced farmers, not just farmhands, whatever, so that they could build this community. Well, an awful lot of men signed up, and generally it's said because they wanted to get the medal and the knighthood. But if you go back to the uh, idea of survival and greed... Here they would get 16,000 acres that they couldn't ever possibly own mm-hmm. in Scotland. Yeah. And they would become above the law, which would protect them from any ghosts or skeletons in their closet. So <laughs> uh, 
you know, if you're a clan chief and you and your country's kind of suffering from societal collapse and and there's a lot of uh, broken men out on the highway and you, you barely dare go over to see your cousin because you think you'll get mugged and it, and you're offered this and you look at your treasure and you think, well, I can afford this yeah. and look what I can get back. I'm getting yeah. thousands of acres and uh, I'm above the law. And sometimes and plus I'm a knight. Yeah, right. Uh, sometimes I thought that 1632 almost felt like like it was a 17th century debt ledger. It just like it was like talking about all these guys who, you know, many like most of the people going back over the island had a lot of debt and a lot of were, were had some baggage going yes. to Scotland. So so this really was a, a safe haven for a lot of people. And and I didn't even when I wrote both of those books, I hadn't realized at the time that they were above the law. And I only recently found the actual charter for the baronets. And that's when I read they're above the law. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that adds a whole a whole new aspect to the story. Because uh, even today, I, I don't know what that it was 2000 Merck. So I don't know, say it's 10,000 bucks or 20,000 or whatever. Who wouldn't, you know, who, what wealthy man wouldn't pay that immediately if they no longer had to answer to the law? That was only the first half of our discussion with historian James McQuiston. You can find his books on Amazon and check out his website at oakislandgold.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever platform you're hearing our podcast on. Thank you to James McQuiston for being on the show, and thank you to Ben Sound for his music. You can hear more of his work at bensound.com. This is Luke Stentz and Carl Gardner signing, signing off. off.